Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 25 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, in just a couple of minutes, I'm going to begin reading uh, the parable that begins in verse 14. Uh, But before I do that, I want to read another parable, a modern parable, not a biblical one, written by Doug Mendenhall. Uh, Listen to uh, these lines from him. He says, Jesus called the other day and to say he was passing through town and wondered if he could spend a day or two with us. I said, sure, love to see you. When will you hit town? I mean, it's Jesus, you know, and it's not every day you get a chance to visit with him. It's not like it's your in-laws and you have to stop and decide whether the advantages outweigh you having to move to the sleeper sofa. That's when Jesus told me he was actually at a convenience store out by the interstate. I must have gotten that Bambi and headlights look because my wife hissed, what is it? What's wrong? Who is that? So I covered the receiver and told her that Jesus was going to arrive in eight minutes. And she ran out of the room and started giving guidance to the kids in that effective way that Marine drill instructors give guidance to recruits. My mind was racing, already racing with what we needed to be done in the next eight, no, seven minutes, so Jesus wouldn't think we were reprobate loser slobs. I turned off the TV in the den, which was blaring some weird, scary movie I'd been half watching, but I could still hear screams from our bedroom, so I turned off the reality show it was tuned to. Plus, I turned off the kids' set out on the sun porch because I didn't want to have to explain John and Kate plus eight to Jesus either six minutes from now. He wrote this a few years ago. You'll understand. My wife had already thinned out the magazines that had been accumulating on the coffee table. She put Christianity Today on top for a good first impression. Five minutes to go. I looked out the window, but the yard actually looked great thanks to my long, hard work, so I let it go. What could I improve in four minutes anyway? I did notice the mail had come, so I ran out to grab it. Mostly it was Netflix envelopes. (laughs) Who does that anymore? Mostly it was Netflix envelopes and a bunch of catalogs tied into recent purchases, so I stuffed it all back in the box. Jesus doesn't need to get the wrong idea three minutes from now about how much online shopping we do. I ran back in and picked up a bunch of shoes left by the door, tried to stuff them in the front closet, but it was overflowing with heavy coats and work coats and snow coats and pretty coats and raincoats and extra coats. We live in the South. Why do we have so many coats? I squeezed the shoes in with two minutes to go. I plumped up sofa pillows. My wife tossed dishes into the sink. I scolded the kids. She shooed the dog. With one minute left, I realized something important. Getting ready for a visit from Jesus is not an eight-minute job. No, indeed, it is not, which is why Matthew devoted so much time in this gospel to speaking to us about Jesus' return. We've been walking through this sermon that encompasses chapters 24 and 25. It all began with a question that the disciples asked in verse 3 of chapter 24. They said to Jesus, When will this happen, the destruction of the temple? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus starts to answer their question. At the beginning of the sermon, he goes through some of the circumstances that are going to surround his return. And we don't, followers of Jesus, don't all agree about the circumstances of his return. We are certain he's coming back, 
But in the body of Christ worldwide, there's disagreement about what the New Testament teaches about the circumstances of his return. Uh, We don't even agree with that in our own church about the circumstances of his return. He's coming back. We're just not sure uh, in agreement about all of the details. After he talked about those circumstances, which we talked about a little bit, and I think will come up again next week, uh, Jesus moves into talking uh, just practically to his disciples about being ready for his return. What does it mean to be ready for the fact that Jesus is coming? And the lessons here that he gives apply regardless of your view of the end times. If you're uh, among those people who think that the next thing is going to happen is described in 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture where Jesus is going to call believers to himself in the clouds, and then there'll be a a gap of time before the second coming, say maybe seven years or something like that. Um, You don't know when the rapture is going to happen. It's an unexpected event that could happen at any time so you better be ready. If you're of the opinion that the next thing that we're waiting for in the calendar of events is the second coming itself, when Jesus will come to the earth, return to the earth again, you don't know when that's going to happen, so you better be ready. And Jesus is talking to us here about being ready. Jesus expected that the future events that he's describing here will roll back into the present and shape what we do today. The the return of Jesus is like the sunrise. If you get up early in the morning, it's winter. You don't have to get up too early to get up before the sun. But if you get up before the sun, your life is guided either by your knowledge of your house and the shadows of the moon as you walk around, or it's guided by electric light. You use a lot of electric light until the sun comes up. Then the sunrise. Life on earth as we know it here is dim. It's dark. Uh, We're waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. The sunrise, we're waiting for that day to come. And verse 14 begins a parable where Jesus tells us what we do while we wait. We serve faithfully. We serve faithfully. This is a warning passage. The main focus of this parable that Jesus told is on the character in it who failed who failed to faithfully serve. It's the character that Jesus calls at the end wicked and lazy. I want to help you today avoid being wicked, lazy, and lost. What we're going to do is I want to walk through this passage. We're going to read through it. It's a parable. It's not um, Outlines don't come easily to parables, so I'm going to read some verses and then talk about them. We'll kind of meander our way through before we finish, though, I do want to think very carefully about that, the third servant that we're going to come to and how grievously he failed. We're going to think about how the wicked and lazy servant went wrong. Don't join his company. That's Jesus' point here. So let's begin. Verse 14. Verse 14 says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. Now, this third parable begins just like the, the first two in this Uh, sermon that we talked about a couple weeks ago uh, with someone leaving who's going to come back. In the first parable, it was the master. In the second parable, it was a bridegroom. In the third parable, again, it's a master, a man, an owner of, uh, of his coming back to his household. Dale Bruner says he thinks that's a pretty good balance for us as we think about life in this world while we wait for Jesus. Work, wedding, work. Pretty good balance. Hard work, 
interspersed moments of joy, hard work. Pretty good balance. And the text tells us that he entrusted his wealth to his servants. Now, the emphasis is not as clear in our English translation, but in the original language uh, in which Matthew wrote, the emphasis is very strongly on the fact that these things in this passage belong to the master. He's the master and they're his slaves. They're his own slaves. He's entrusting to them his own wealth. Jesus wants you to think about the resources that you have and, and using them wisely to get ready for his return. And a good place to start in ordering our lives this way is to remember that God owns everything. And that everything that you have, everything that you are, is because God has entrusted it to you. This is a good organizing principle for life. Paul referred to this in Acts chapter 17 when he preached in the city of Athens. Look what Acts 17, 28 says. It says, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Your life is not your own. What you have, who you are, is God's gift to you. And because of that, you are accountable to him for how you use it. You could think about that when you go to your house and you pick up the things that are in your house. Today, sometime, you'll pick up, uh, sometime today, in the next six minutes, you'll pick up your cell phone. And, and this cell phone is a gift from God entrusted to you by him. Um, uh, you have, God gave you the skills and the energy to work so that you could afford this cell phone. And, and how will you use it in a way that reflects your accountability to him? God has entrusted into your care uh, your, your house keys. You pick them up to get into your house. Here this building is that God has entrusted to you. How will you use it? God has, yeah, maybe you'll sit down today in your recliner, a fine gift from God. How will you use it in a way that demonstrates the fact that you know that it is God's gift to you? God owns everything and he has entrusted things into our safekeeping and we're accountable to him for how we use them. Now, let's talk about what the master gave his servants. Verse 15. To one, he gave five bags of gold. Your translation might say talent. We'll talk about that in a minute. To another, two bags. And to another, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Now, my translation, as I said, says five bags of gold, two bags of gold, one bag of gold. Your translation might say five talents, two talents, one talent. Um, the bags of gold is an effort on the part of the translators here of this text to communicate this is a lot of money. There's been effort over, the time, over time to, to uh, put uh, talents in modern dollars. It's a difficult thing to do because a talent is actually a unit of weight, not a unit of currency. So it's not easy. Uh, my uh, translation, again, has a footnote that says that a talent was worth about 20 years of a day laborer's wage, which is probably about right. One talent, about what you make in 20 years. This is not chump change that this man is handing out. It's a lot of money. I don't know if you saw the story this week. It was kind of funny. Um, a professor at the Wharton Business School in Philadelphia, the Wharton Business School is a a very expensive, very exclusive school. And uh, she asked her class, how much do you think the average American worker makes? 
These are people who can afford to go to Wharton. How much do you think the average American salary is? And the number they gave was in the six figures. And one of her students said $800,000 for what the average American worker makes. I'm going to schedule an elders meeting to talk about my salary. (laughs) They were off a little bit. The average American worker actually makes $53,000, and the median income in the United States is $43,000. So let's do a little math, okay? If one talent is 20 years of a day laborer's salary, let's take 20 and multiply it by $40,000, just for simplicity's sake, we get $800,000. So the one bag of gold man is getting about $800,000. That's a useful way to think about it. And the, the five bag of gold man is getting five times 800,000, $4 million, $4 million. That's a lot of money. Now, again, Jesus is talking to his disciples about being ready for his return. And there are some people who have tried to think about what, what is Jesus trying to symbolize here with this money that he's that, that this master is giving out? What's he want us to think about in our own lives? And there's been a lot of suggestions over the years. Some people want you to think about the money that God has addressed in your hands and that this parable is about money chiefly. That's not wrong, I don't think. Maybe it's a little narrow. Some people have thought that Jesus is talking about time. God has given you a limited amount of time or a specific amount of time, possibly. It's interesting that our English word talent doesn't refer to a weight. It refers to your aptitudes, your abilities. Maybe, maybe uh, that's what Jesus is thinking about here, your, your abilities. Probably he has in mind the sum total of these things. God has entrusted you with skills and resources and opportunities. He gives them to you, and they're shaped by your liabilities, and he has entrusted them to you. And what's clear from this text, and if you look around the room, it's clear too, God has given us abilities in different ways, in different measures. It would be so boring if we all had the same gifts, skills, and resources. But there is this phrase, this phrase that's, that's not, not uh, the main point in the parable, but this phrase that might stick in your brain like a stone in your shoe. It says, the master gave the bags of gold, right at the end of verse 16, each according to his ability. How do you feel about those five words? God gives generously to his people. He gives generously gifts and skills and resources and abilities, but he does not give us all the same gifts, skills, resources, and abilities. And I don't know anyone who doesn't struggle with that because it is so easy to compare the gifts and skills and resources that God has given you with the gifts and skills and resources he's given to other people. It's so easy to compare and then to complain. Think for a minute about this sentence. I'm going to put a blank in this sentence, and I want you to think about what you put in this sentence in that blank, and I want you to think about how often this sentence comes to your mind. I wish that I could blank like that person. How 
How many times is that sentence? And what do you put in that blank? You could put hundreds of things in that blank, right? Sing, speak, tell a joke, drive a car, bake a pie, paint a picture, kick a kickball, throw a football, dress, decorate my house, landscape, right? I mean, how many hundreds of things could you put in that blank? What, what do you put in, in yours when you write that sentence? When, when that sentence runs through your mind, I don't know how often it does. What would you, I wish I could, like, and, and, and you're making comparisons and, and uh. God's intention in this passage is that actually we would see his good, wise provision. That God knows, he knows us, and he knows the responsibilities that uh, we can bear, and he entrusts those responsibilities to you and not more, and not less, but the responsibilities that he gives to you that are commensurate with the skills and resources and abilities that he gives you. Now, I know it's true that at points in our life, maybe daily, God wants you to be up at a point where you can say, I can't do this, I really need the Holy Spirit. That's true. But God entrusts into you a, 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 a weight, weight that is commensurate with his good, wise provision. I don't know anybody who doesn't struggle with this, though. Well, actually, I, it's supposed to be about God's good, wise provision. Instead, this, this provokes envy so often. I know two people who maybe have made progress in this. One of them was our dear friend, Mary Virginia Heisey, who just passed away. And Mary Virginia Heisey's favorite verse that she used to quote all the time in the King James was Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever state I am in, therewith to be content. She used to quote that verse all the time. She said it out loud to you. How often do you think she said it to herself? I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content. She was taking the sword of the spirit to slay the dragon of envy that lived even in Mary Virginia Heisey's heart. The other person that I know who has made progress in this is another woman in her 90s. Do you have to be old to learn this? I don't know. Some of you remember Anne Henry. Anne Henry used to live down the street. She's, I think now, the oldest member of our congregation. She lives at the Mennonite home now. And uh, often when I go visit Anne Henry, she tells me this. She says, people say you have to keep up with the Joneses. That never bothered me because I don't have to pay the Joneses' bills. She said it to me dozens of times. I wonder how many times she said it to herself. Each according to his own ability is an expression of God's good, wise provision. Oh, how hard a lesson that is to learn. Now, verse 16 tells us about what the servants did with that money. Uh, the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So he had a total of eight bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. We'll stop there for just a minute. These first two servants are busy men. Um, the text begins immediately, or my, my translation puts at once later, but immediately they go out, they went out, they put to work, and they gained. These are active verbs. They're, they're, they doubled their profit. They're $4 million, right? Woo! Um, they're uh, 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 starting businesses and investing the money and making it back, more money. 
If I were an enthusiastic capitalist, this would be one of my favorite parables. Because the heroes in these stories are the capitalists. We're making the money. Now, the second man started with less and made less. That's okay. The problem is with the third servant, and look what he does, verse 18. But the man who'd received one bag went off. It's, actually, it's a different verb for went. He went off. What did he do? He didn't put it to work. He dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, this is a respectable way to save money, uh, save valuables, to preserve valuables, to bury it and put it in the ground. That was not an uncommon thing to do at, at the time. I don't recommend it now, but it was acceptable. And notice it, it didn't involve much work. Didn't involve much work. Um, there was no risk involved, no reward, but no risk. And it was easy. It was easy. That's the problem. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned. A long time. Is he implying here that his return is going to take a while? It seems to me, maybe. Uh, it's been 2,000 years since he said these words. So we're still waiting. After a long time, the master of these servants returned and settled the counts with them. Now we're going to have two identical conversations. What's interesting, this is, I mean, it's a wonderful story, and this is how stories work so often. Three characters, two of them are very similar. One of them is the odd man out. Just think about this. A priest, a rabbi, and a Baptist preacher go fishing, right? You know, and, and two of them are going to be the same, and one of them is going to be the weirdo, the Baptist preacher, okay? So, or there were three little pigs who had to build houses to protect themselves from the big bad wolf. And in that pair of uh, story, the first two are wise and the, nope, sorry, the first two are the dimwits and the third one is wise. In this parable, it's the other way around because it's a warning parable. The first two are, are wise and the third one is a dimwit. So here's what Jesus says to the, his faithful servants or the master says to the faithful servants. Verse 20, um, the man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. And he hands him a check for $8 million. And his master replied, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Now, verse 22, the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you have entrusted me with two bags of gold. Uh, $1.6 million. See, I have gained two more. Here's $3.2 million. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. They're commended. They're rewarded. Three aspects of their reward. There's first the commendation, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. They're commended. Do you know anybody who is particularly motivated by words of affirmation, words of praise? It's okay to live for words of praise as long as the person that you're seeking to please is worthy of your service. And, and, and the master here is worthy of, of seeking to please. Commendation, then increased responsibility. You've been faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Now, this should make you think. 
if this master calls $4 million, few things, how much does this man have? Oh my, he's, he's rich, 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 rich. He could buy the Wharton School of Business rich, right? Wow. Increase responsibility and then joy. Come and share your master's happiness. That's only a reward if you think the master is actually happy. We'll come back to that. Notice here, different amounts of money, five bags of gold, two bags of gold, but the same reward. It doesn't matter how much you have, but what you do with it, your potential to please the master is the same. Do with what you have. Seek to please him with what you have. It might help you to think about this. Um, You would be much happier in life, I think, if you take your eyes off of your peers, take your eyes off your peers' resources, skills, abilities, opportunities, take your eyes off their liabilities and focus your eyes on the master because he's the one that we aim to please. And his assessment is all that matters. I'm terrible at art. Can't, I, couldn't, I can't draw my way out of a paper bag. It's terrible. Um, I, can't, uh, I can't draw. I can't paint. I can't sculpt. I, I have trouble with glue. I just, I can't do anything, all right? So third grade art class, here I am in third grade in art class, and I am uh, uh, drawing, and uh, it's so tempting to look at my, my fellow students, and they're drawing what the, just exactly what the teacher told them to do, and theirs is, is wonderful, and mine is some hideous monster. And it'd be so, it's so easy just to feel bad, and it's easy for them maybe to look at my art and make fun of me for how bad it is. Terrible drawing that I've done. I mean, I've worked at it. I've done the best I could, but what the best I can do is not good. So tempting to just think about my peers and their evaluation and, and compare myself. But there is only one person whose evaluation actually matters in that class, and it is the teacher. And great day will come. I'm going to present what I've got to her for her evaluation. You'd be much happier if you stopped focusing on the resources and abilities and skills of your peers and focus your eyes on the master. Now, I know there's some students in here who have been in art class. Maybe you're in math class or history class. What happens when the paper comes back and it's terrible? (laughs) The one, one person whose opinion matters handed their grade, your grade back, and it was bad. It was very bad. What do you do then? What do you do then? Just, just a side note. Uh, well, a couple things come to mind. One, you can rejoice over the fact that you will eventually get to your point in life when no one will be grading your math ever. That's a happy moment. It's a happy moment. You'll, you'll graduate from school, and you get to a point where you can center your life in the things that you're good at and not math or art. All right, that's good news. You should, you should be happy about that. The second thing, though, that you should do is, remember, God in his good, wise provision gives you the skills and abilities that you have. Use them to the fullest extent that you can in art class and in math class and in gym class and in history class. And, and regardless of what the teacher thinks, uh, grades you, at, and, and no matter how you perform, if you have done your best with what God has given you to do, then you should be pleased and, 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 and with contentment 
present even, even my terrible third grade art project to him as, as a, a, a gift to him in thanks for his generosity to me. That's a little bit of a tangent, I suppose. Let's think about the third servant. The third servant, all right? Verses 24 to 27. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. There's a lot here. Let's think about this. This man, his problem, what? He's lazy. He's lazy. That's his root problem. It takes effort to steward the resources and abilities and gifts that, and opportunities that God has given to you. It takes effort. It is hard work to be an elder of a congregation. You lose sleep. You'll uh, have a, a meetings and, and conversations with people. It's hard work being an elder. It's supposed to make you tired, which is why God in his kindness also gives recliners. You, it's okay to go home on Wednesday night after Awana and be tired. That's a sign that you're doing it right. That, that, that you're serving in a, because it, it, lazy people don't use the gifts and skills at, 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 that God has given them. Now, that's his problem at root, the laziness. The speech that he gives, how long did he take preparing this speech? The speech that he gives is supposed to get him off of the, the charge of being lazy. It's supposed to make excuses for him. It's supposed to cover up for his laziness. The problem with his speech is, well, there's a couple of problems, it's, it, it's a cover that, that he doesn't actually believe. He, the master says, well, if you believed what you say you believe, you would at least put my money in the bank instead of burying it. So he doesn't actually believe what he says. And then the other problem with, with his speech is it's just not true. Let's think about it. What he says, two things, uh, and these are not true. He says, first of all, the master is not worth serving. The master is not worth serving. He says... Master, I knew you, I know you, and I know that you are a hard man. You could translate that stingy, selfish, unfair, cruel. You're a hard man. Um, you're not worth serving. Another way to say that. You, you don't call for good, glad service because you're a hard man. I volunteered uh, when, when Claire was in sixth grade, the school went out, uh, the call went out from the school for they were looking for parent volunteers to come and volunteer for the sixth grade track and field day. Every year in the spring, the sixth grade physical education teachers in uh, the Penn Manor School District host a track and field day, and they were looking for volunteers. So when Claire was in sixth grade, I volunteered, and I went. It was great. It was a beautiful day outside. It was the springtime, and um, the, the day was really well organized, and every time I turned around, one of the teachers or uh, one of the phys ed teachers or one of the sixth grade teachers was thanking me for being there. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. We so appreciate you being here, and uh, uh, it was a great day. You know that when they were sent, the same, the same call went out when Jenna was in sixth grade, we need volunteers. I totally signed up. Absolutely. Yes, I will be there. Beautiful day, 
not-so-terrible children, well-organized events. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming. We so appreciate it. We're so glad you're here. Uh, when Luke was in sixth grade, they canceled track and field day due to COVID. Worst day of my life. I have already emailed the gym teacher at uh, my children's elementary school, and I said, please, please, when you're looking for volunteers, I don't have a sixth grader anymore. When you're looking for volunteers for the sixth grade track field, I would love to do it. Who wouldn't want to? Outside, springtime, well-organized event, somewhat acceptable children, and thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you from every teacher you turn to. Who wouldn't want to serve under those conditions? Now, on the other hand, yo, you know people, you have tried to serve people who are hard to serve. You show up to their house to help them and they complain that it's been so long since you've been there to help them. And they're demanding. And they're never satisfied. It's never quite right. And, you know, the other people who used to come and help them, well, they don't come anymore, but they used to do it better than you do. Who would you rather serve? Where would you rather serve? Who would you rather work for? Who would you rather be parented by? Oh, here we go. Who would you rather be married to? Someone who's hard to serve or someone who's easy to serve? You are a hard man, this third servant said to the master. I was afraid, he says. He was afraid of what? He was afraid of making a mistake. This is his excuse. I was afraid of making a mistake and getting into trouble. Did you know people who live that way that their whole life is guarded, grounded by, I just don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to do anything that I'm going to get in trouble by. My, uh, everything I do is so that I don't get in trouble. That's a hard way to live in God's world. The master, you're a hard master. God, you're a hard God. You are a cruel, selfish, uh, unfair, stingy God. That's contradicted by every element in this story. The master comes and he gives his wealth to his servants. He entrusts them with a huge amount of money. And when, they come, when he comes back, he rewards them. He's, he's thrilled. Well done. He, he commends them. He invites them into his happiness. He rewards them. He's not stingy. He's not unfair. He's not cruel. God is not a hard master. Jesus apparently thinks that God is very happy and that when he says, come into your master's happiness, it's something that you would want in on. Uh, is the God you worship a happy God? How else, how, what else can we say about the God who made strawberries? I know strawberry season is six months away, but you know what you're going to be doing in June. You're going to be looking for strawberries. You're going to bring them into your house or pick them right out of your garden and eat them warm off of the vine. Oh. You're, uh, you'll wash some of them. You'll make a pie and you'll have strawberry pie or strawberry shortcake. You, some of you will put them in a bowl and toss a little sugar on it and, and stir it around and, and, and eat those juicy strawberries. Grouchy gods do not make strawberries. Unhappy gods do not paint the sky orange and purple and red two times a day. 
Unhappy gods do not take to themselves human flesh and come to live among rebellious creatures. Grumpy gods do not send their sons to die. But that's what the Christian story is. The Christian story, what we believe, is that God, because he so loved the world, grouchy people don't love very well, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. He, he lived the life uh, that we live with all the temptations and troubles and trials that he emerged uh, uh -huh, spectacularly successful. I, I, I fail often. He did not ever once. Then he died on the cross, bearing the punishment for our sins, our failures, our rebellion against God, he died, was buried, rose again, ascended to heaven, and he sends the announcement to everyone who will, anyone, anyone who wants to be forgiven, anybody who wants to have his eternal happiness, to join in his eternal happiness, can turn and trust in Jesus, our Savior, and find life and forgiveness. Grouchy gods don't do that. Gods who are unworthy of serving are not that kind. You are a Christian because God is not unhappy, grumpy, stingy, cruel, or unkind. That's uh, where this, this servant goes. He has no service because he has no regard for the generosity of the master and how wrong he is. God, you're not worth serving. It's a reminder in this passage that, that we are to grow in our awe of this Lord and awe of his generosity. Our, our service is a response to his great grace. It's not normal to be in awe of this Lord. That's, sin does that. Sin, sin darkens your eyes to the awe, uh, to the glory of this great Lord. It's, it's like if you were in the Louvre in Paris and you're surrounded by masterpieces and you can go look at this art and say, wow. If somebody goes in and turns off the lights off, there's no wow, can't see anything. Sin turns the lights off so that we can't see the wonder of this Lord. And we say stupid stuff like you're a hard man. The good news is that, that you can grow in awe of this Lord. It's what we do when we gather on Sunday mornings, what we're after. We gather together to sing to one another, to read God's word, and to study the scripture so that we will never say, you are a hard God, you're a grouchy God, you're a grumpy God. It's that we meet together so that we say, when it says, come and share your master's happiness, we say, yes, that's what I want. Uh, the master's not worth serving. That's what he says. He says, secondly... His contribution is insignificant. His contribution is insignificant. You're a hard man. You get profits anywhere you want, with anything you want. You get what you want. My one bag of gold, my effort isn't going to make a difference. Who cares what I do? It doesn't matter because you're a hard man. There's, you wonder in this passage, well, there's clearly blame going on. This is your fault. It's not my fault. It's your fault. You're a hard man. That's why I didn't serve you and I was afraid of you. It's your fault. Blame we're good at that as human beings, then I wonder if there's a little bit of bitterness here too. There's a guy with five bags of gold. I only got one. It's not fair. What, you don't, you, let him do all the work. I don't need to do anything because my contribution is not going to matter. How, how can he say that in light of the fact that the gold star giver in the Gospels 
is actually a, a woman who gave two copper coins. It's not in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and it happened about this time, the same week that Jesus um, delivered this sermon. Look at Luke chapter 21, 1 through 4. four. It's a service that you know, uh, it's a passage that you know. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two cop- very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Doesn't matter what you have, it matters what you do with what you have. Now, Paul takes this attitude on in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he compares the church to a body. It's a very familiar passage. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. I don't do all the work that a hand does. What good am I? It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. All I do is hear, I don't get to see. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body every one of them just as he wanted them to be. You're supposed to see God's good, wise, gracious provision here, each one according to his ability. God put the parts just where he wants them to be. Notice this servant is living in the exact opposite world of Romans 12.1. Most of you know Romans 12.1. Look at what the verse says, and I want you to think about how this is just the exact opposite of this passage. It begins... Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Remember, this servant is not thinking about his master's mercy. He's thinking about his master's stinginess. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to do what? To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is what followers of Jesus do every day. We ask the question, Lord, in light of the gifts and skills and resources and abilities that you've given me today, which are not the same as the other women in my Bible study and not the same as my sister and not the same as my boss, but in light of the gifts and skills and responsibilities and liabilities that you've given me today, show me today how I can use them to serve faithfully every day because Jesus is coming back every day. There are seasons of life when when it becomes more urgent to ask that question, Lord, uh, here I am, I'm a new high school graduate. Help me, what should I do to use the skills and gifts and resources and opportunities that you've given me to serve you faithfully? Here I am, Lord, retired, retirement day one. The alarm clock didn't go off for the first time in 48 years. Help me to use the resources and skills and and opportunities that you've given me to please, to serve you faithfully. Now, I mentioned this is a warning passage. It is, and the warning comes in verses 28 through 30. Look what it says. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. Forever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. That's a direct quote from Matthew 13, 12. Matthew wrote it twice. He said it twice, use what God gives you. If you don't use what God gives you, there will be sorrow and grief and loss. Then verse 30, 
and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Think about what there could have been for this servant. What there could have been for him. What could have happened to him? What could have happened is that the master could have said to him, well done. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll give you, um, put you in charge of many things. Come into your master's happiness. That could have happened to him. Instead, he's thrown out into utter darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. He traded what was easy and what uh, was lazy for what lasts. And as a consequence, he was lost. What are you going to do with what the master has given you? I warn you about that because he's coming back. Jesus is coming back. And getting ready for him to come back is more than an eight-minute job. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you today and we acknowledge that this passage has many things for us to think about. Lord, we confess to you, I confess to you that I am prone to envy. And And I look at people who have different gifts than I do and greater gifts than I do. Seems like there's an abundance of them. But I, I look at those people and, and I am envious and sometimes despair. Lord, this passage makes me think about my own envy, our own envy, and our tendency to compare and to complain. Lord, this passage makes me think about what kind of person I am to serve, to work for, to be married to, to to be a child of. Lord, um, oh, um, I have things to repent of. We have things to repent of. And yet, Lord, there is this grand call in this passage to steward faithfully what you have entrusted to us. How grateful I am to you for these fine men and women. Some of them are skilled pianists and singers, musicians. Some of them are so so good at, at teaching. They can draw, they can paint, they can build, they can fix engines, they can uh, diagnose diseases. All these skills in this room, some of them are just really good at throwing basketballs. Father, how how thankful we are for all of these gifts and resources and abilities that you have entrusted into our care. Oh, this day and tomorrow, grant that we would be faithful stewards of, of yours. Thankful for what you have given to us. Overflowing with gratitude and then serving diligently. Preserve us from being wicked, lazy servants, we pray. These together, these things together in the name of Jesus saying, amen.